This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. There's no doubt that disciplinary proceedings up to and including the hearing itself can be incredibly stressful. After all, an employee's job is on the line. I've represented many, many people who fail to realise that the potential consequences of being too relaxed or unprepared or cocky or arrogant or unapologetic and found themselves out of a job as a result. The attitude of managers was, of course, a key ingredient and varied enormously. Take the case of an engineer who walked apparently uninvited into a woman's bathroom while she was in the bath and offered to scrub her back. Not a chance, I advised the local rep, who later reported back that he had been let off with a warning. Whatever the mitigating circumstances, and they could be quite lurid, I'm sure, I found that very hard to understand. Or the case of a member who had uncharacteristically had too much to drink at a works do and ended up allegedly fondling a senior manager's bum. It turns out that there was a lot of mitigation and even more remorse and a spotless service record. But topping all of those things was the fear that he would lose his job. Given the manager hearing the case, I knew this was unlikely, but I couldn't be sure. I present the case on behalf of our member and he, our member, then sums up. It gets quite emotional. He is pleading for his job when a mobile phone rings. It's the members. And his ringtone is, rescue me. No one dares look at each other. And yes, he kept his job. It would be wrong and impossible to talk about this area of work without understanding the role sex plays. It seems incredible that members, almost always men, thought that they could access explicitly pornographic material in work's time, on work's premises, and using work equipment. The universal rollout of smartphones hopefully makes this a thing of the past, but back in the day, the allocation of an email address and PCs to almost all employees was quickly followed by the numbers dismissed for looking at porn skyrocketing. In most cases, the material viewed was legal. On fortunately very rare occasions, it wasn't. 
and on even rarer ones, it involved union reps. Davey is a good mate of mine. He works in the same role as me, but for a sister union, and he told me a story that made my hair stand on end for the issues it raised. Man, man, it was a nightmare, groaned Davey, taking a sizable pull on his pint before starting. I mean, like, this guy was well-established, if you know what I mean. Long-time local rep, good at his job, well-known and respected in the community. Suddenly, goes very, very quiet. Incommunicado, invisible. And then I get the call from management that he's been charged. He's been charged with allegedly viewing paedophile material when he should be at work, on the computer in the effing branch office. Uh, And um, where is this branch office? I asked, fearing that I certainly knew what the answer would be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, said Davy, reading the look on my face, on the second floor of the company's regional headquarters. That's the perfect trinity then, I thought. In works time, on equipment provided solely for union activity, and on works premises. Oh, oh, you can imagine the dominoes that start falling, groaned Davy, taking another draw from his drink. I mean, in practical terms, who's going to represent this guy? In fact, who's going to want to have anything at all to do with him or his case? In fact, again... Do we represent him or or, or do we cut him loose? I mean, the equipment, the equipment and the viewing took place in a union office. Yeah, but on the employer's premises. So that's that's crap for them and us. (sighs) One positive point, sighed Davy, but this is all relative. There's no denial about what happened. Plenty of mitigation, but no denial. It did present a unique situation, though, I reflected. There was genuine and justifiable disgust. There was deep discomfort too. As is the normal escalation, the case would rapidly find its way to head office, or specifically to Davy's office in his union, just as it would to my office in mine. Davy continued. Well, <laughs> you can imagine. Our staff members declined to handle any material relating to the case. All very polite, like professionals they always are, but also very firm. I can only imagine it was the same for the employer too. I could only think that there was no prosecution or criminal case here, otherwise the internal company procedures would not have continued. Prejudicial to a fair trial, you see, if the company finds a misconduct charge upheld, it's hardly going to play well if the member is in court for the self-same thing, even though the standards of proof in the two places may be very different. So, it was very bad, but there was no criminal dimension, which meant you had to deal, right? I said to Davy. Right, he said. There was no question that we wouldn't represent this guy, whatever colleagues at national and local level were feeling. He had an absolute right to a fair hearing and an equal right to be represented. I nodded sagely. So, said Davy, I did it. Oh, God, I felt like I needed a shower for a week afterwards. Davy relaxed his tense shoulders and shook his head, and I got up to get the next round in. As I used to frequently tell colleagues when dealing with other bad, but not as bad as that one, cases, the absolute entitlement to be represented does not give people a veto over who their advocate is. And there is a world of difference between ensuring a fair hearing and playing Perry Mason on someone's behalf. 
That was certainly the case in another illustration of members going so far beyond the pale that questions were raised about whether to provide representation at all. This was all about falsification of records. In this case, the results of tests to check the calibration on gas meters. This kit makes sure people working in confined spaces can be sure the air is fit to breathe. A modern-day canary, if you will. And the settings need to be checked at regular intervals. The charge, subsequently upheld, is that our member had been certifying some meters as checked without actually testing them. You can perhaps imagine the effect of suddenly and unexpectedly not being able to breathe, especially if the confined space you're working in is one that is difficult to get out of, like at the bottom of a manhole shaft. And you can imagine why the thought of a rogue tester being at large would send a chill down the back of anyone needing to rely on the equipment in question. But everyone is entitled to a fair hearing. In any sizable population, and we had close on 200,000 members in the union at the time, you will get a few people at the extremes of behaviour. I got stung by one such person, but really, it was my own fault. I was having a post-training course drink with a group of reps, and we were chatting about some of the more bizarre circumstances our members got themselves into. I mentally checked the room that there was no one there who could work out the who, what, where, or when of the story I was about to tell by jigsaw identification. So, I begin. An enterprising chap has, a, don't ask me how, a list of the addresses and phone numbers of all the local sex workers in a fairly sizable post-industrial town in one of the non-English home nations. This is pre-mass mobile, let alone 4G or 5G, and he systematically disconnects these lines and then just happens to be in his liveried van outside the corresponding address. <gasps> oh, says the disconnected customer. Thank goodness you happen to be here. I don't suppose you could do me a favour, could you? Certainly can. If you do one for me, is the response. But our Lothario gets careless and cuts off the madam of a small brothel as opposed to all the other freelancers or sole traders. Now, like all good managers, Madame has a good knowledge of what's happening in the local patch, and she's heard the same story from three of her girls. Luckless Lothario is busted. Well, it's a good story, but I obviously was not careful enough in telling it. Someone in the group goes back to his local branch, shares the anecdote, and one of his colleagues works out exactly the clearly inadequately disguised who, what, where and when. The local rep phones me up to alert me. I am quite rightly mortified. Don't be, says the rep. There's worse to come. Having worked out the who, what, where and when, our local Sherlock has decided to go a bit Moriarty and blackmailed the Lothario. He couldn't make it up. I believe the matter was resolved when some of Lothario's very sizable and well-built acquaintances paid Sherlock a visit for a quiet, friendly chat. And the issue stayed buried. In my working life, there has been a decisive shift in the economy. Now small and medium-sized firms make up the clear majority of employers. Union membership and density has fallen. It's now around 16% in the engorged private sector and 55% in what's left of our public sector. The percentage of workplaces with the union presence has fallen too. The union movement is losing older members faster than young replacements can come on stream. We also have a huge skills gap in the area of management. 
The 2008 financial crisis meant on average people in 2018 were still over 35 quid a month worse off than they were 10 years before that. The government response was to incentivise short-termism by making employment more precarious. And then no sooner had wages actually caught up than the pandemic hit and once again the real value of what's in your pay packet is falling behind terrifyingly large increases in energy bills and inflation rates not seen for 30 years are playing starring roles in a bona fide, true enough, cost of living crisis. The TUC Chief Frances O'Grady sums it up well when she talks about growth being the missing ingredient from economic policy at present. Because without growth and increasing earnings, jobs become too cheap, not valued. Workers are not worth investing in. I say this here because a detailed disciplinary process with dedicated resources to make it run comparatively smoothly reflects a corporate view about the value of jobs in the company. Certainly, when you step outside organisations with that level of resource and ethos, you notice it immediately. The whole process outside is brittle. Life lived to the letter of the law and never the spirit. outcome orientated never solution orientated no flexibility over anything especially the administrative arrangements such as the scheduling of the hearing no weight attached to well-founded arguments in mitigation and then shock horror and angst if one of our reps has the temerity to remind the employer of their own procedural requirements still less some relevant piece of employment law a legal precedent from 1988 known as the Polky ruling greatly reduced the ability to argue that procedural failings were sufficient to overturn a dismissal by saying, essentially, that they had to be of material consequence to be admissible. But this is entirely irrelevant to the myriad of managers and HR advisors I've encountered over the years who clearly have not read their company's own policies and were essentially making up procedures as they went along. Point this out. And there's a dismissive wave or shrug, as if to say, first, I don't see why this is a problem. Second, I'm the boss and I'll say what's right and wrong. And third, are you saying I don't know what's right and wrong? Well, yes, not that you don't know right from wrong and not that you're not the boss. But you have just contradicted your own policy and probably the law as well. This usually leads to a break during which advice can be sought and a process of waking up and smelling the coffee takes place. Not all ideas in this area are bad or misplaced. When note-takers were replaced by recording machines, there was great suspicion amongst our activists. Hang on, I argued with my colleagues. How often do we dispute notes of hearings? Something has been incorrectly transcribed. Key contextual information is missing. We can't bemoan inaccuracies and then object to a programme of remedial action. Of course, technology moves quickly, and recording was soon accompanied by remoteness. No specialist HR presence in the room, which when it was competent was certainly an asset. And then, no manager either. Skype, video conferencing, Google Hangouts, these things are too important and sensitive to be done remotely or at arm's length. And I'm sure someone, somewhere in the world, has been sacked by algorithm by now. Correction. I know many people in the UK and elsewhere have indeed been sacked by algorithm with the message conveyed by auto-generated text. Robo-sackings, as James Farrer of the App Drivers and Couriers Union puts it.
Some remote monitoring can have an upside, though. One employer had mobile engineers who complained of forever crossing each other going in opposite directions on the A1 or M1 or M18 or M62. Poor work allocation was accompanied by and in fact generated by work schedules that could only be accomplished by breaking the speed limit. We're going to put high-tech trackers in the vans, said the firm. Through them, we can see where everyone is and send the nearest van to each job. So, you'll also be able to see how far you're expecting people to travel, and in what time, we say. Nodding heads from the managers, but members were naturally suspicious of what they saw as a spy in the cab. Again, we could hardly argue when the employer takes action to address a concern that we ourselves have raised, and the trackers were switched off when our members clocked off. Two final changes, not now much remembered, but in reality very important. In 2004, it became mandatory for employers to have a disciplinary and grievance procedure. It seems amazing that such a step was needed, although part of the rationale was to better manage applications to employment tribunals. It nevertheless was a step change in employment culture. Perhaps no surprise that the minister responsible was Alan Johnson, former Union General Secretary. In the Employment Relations Act of the same year, the age-old right to be accompanied to a disciplinary hearing was refined to include union employees accredited by their employer, the union, to undertake this role. I think the accreditation requirement adds gravitas to the representative's role, as well as embellishing the pre-existing ability of members to look to union officials to be their representatives, irrespective of whether the union is recognised in the workplace. I'm left thinking that we're stuck in a fairly negative, even destructive cycle when it comes to conduct at work. All the vast majority of people want is a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. They want the tools and kit to do the work they're employed for, and they have a legitimate expectation that the employer will treat them fairly, transparently and safely. The problem is that some businesses seem increasingly out of step with this maxim. It's the cost of everything and the value of nothing. How to get more output for less pay. Yes, technological advances can generate huge efficiencies, but you can't endlessly work smarter rather than harder. And and many jobs need a human presence. Can you imagine a care home run entirely by AI? Not even Southern Cross went that far. Uh, One person's flexibility is another's exploitation. Isn't that so, Uber? And cost, rather than service, is becoming dominant, even in regulated utilities. Ain't that the truth, Ofcom? It makes it difficult for a corrective approach to misconduct to survive, let alone flourish. Coercion and conflation prevail, lumping everything that is unwelcome to an employer together. So you can see sickness, timekeeping, poor performance, misconduct, disability, pregnancy, complaints, union activity all under one procedural umbrella, even though half of these are not legal grounds for dismissal. It's an ill-informed and almost obsessive preoccupation to cut so-called red tape, push back a nanny state and anachronistic unions, allegedly in pursuit of a more dynamic economy. The cyclical nature of this comes about because disempowered, disengaged employees are inevitably less productive than those who are motivated and secure. The beatings will continue until morale improves is not a line from either the Trade Union Act or the Universal Credit Handbook, but it could and should be. And in this way, government creates a hostile working environment that is readily amplified by bad employers.
There's no point bleating about how bad P&O are to sack 800 people with no consultation when you yourself are partly responsible for creating the circumstances in which these things become thinkable. And even if you subscribe to a corrective and restorative approach to discipline rather than a coercive, punitive one, this can't offset a lack of values, a lack of awareness, a lack of work readiness by employees or those managing misconduct cases. But let's not pretend. Some people are bad. Some are damaged. Some will have a grudge. Some are rule breakers. Some, like the errant gas tester, are a danger to their colleagues. So there needs to be a process that provides an outcome even when that outcome is dismissal. In the right environment, all conduct cases can make a positive contribution. That's not as contradictory as it sounds, but it all depends on the ability and willingness of the employer to look for the learning points, to be committed to a process of continuous improvement, to have the self-confidence to recognise all things are capable of improvement. Government has to play its role too. That's why the barriers erected and now largely dismantled thanks to the legal team at Unison, to accessing employment justice through employment tribunals were an aggressive, partisan and wrong-headed thing to do. And also counterproductive to the notion of a high-performing economy built on successful businesses with engaged, productive, properly trained and suitably remunerated workforces. It's not rocket science. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.